This podcast is intended to provide general information about various recent developments in employment law and human resources best practices. Nothing in this presentation or in the comments of Ms. Johnson, Ms. Shannon, or any guest should be considered as the rendering of legal or other professional advice, and it is not directed at any specific cases or circumstances. Listeners are responsible for obtaining the necessary advice about their specific situations from their own counsel. These materials are intended for educational and informational purposes only. The presentation and these materials represent the opinions of the participants and not those of their law firms or companies. No part of these materials may be printed, photocopied, or otherwise reproduced, recorded, or stored, or transmitted in any form and by any means, electronic, mechanical, or otherwise, without the prior written permission of today's workplace podcast. Welcome to today's workplace, a podcast created to keep employers current on the latest employment law trends while providing proactive solutions to the everyday issues arising in today's rapidly changing workplace. Is your business prepared for today's workplace? Let's find out with your hosts, Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. Well, welcome to today's workplace. We've had a series of discussions about diversity, equity, and inclusion over the last several months. And we've had some great speakers who have provided a lot of insight about the many aspects of DEI. Uh, We've talked about millennials and changing expectations, the use of metrics to advance our DEI objectives, our DEI and cultural transformation, DEI in the entertainment industry, uh, diversity in LGBTQ employees, and we even had a chance to talk about global DEI initiatives. So today, we're very excited to have two luminaries of the plaintiff side employment bar share their perspective on systemic discrimination and provide insight about what happens when DEI programs are not effective. In other words, when the cultural transformation around DEI does not take place and when there is evidence of systemic issues around race and gender in the workplace. Today, we welcome Kelly Dermody and Jahan Sagavi. Kelly Dermody is the managing partner of the San Francisco office of Lise Cabrazer, Hyman and Bernstein, LLP. She represents employees in class, collective, and hashtag MeToo actions. She is the current chair of the American Bar Association's section of labor and employment law and serves on the American Bar Association's Diversity and Inclusion Advisory Council. In 2012, she served as president of the Bar Association of San Francisco. She is a member of the College of Labor and Employment Lawyers and the American Law Institute. In 2019, she received the ABA's Margaret Brent Women Lawyers of Achievement Award. Kelly received her BA degree magna cum laude from Harvard University and JD degree from Berkeley Law School. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you. Jahan Sagafi is the partner in charge of Outen and Golden's San Francisco office, where he represents employees in employment class actions, 
challenging discrimination, wage and hour abuses, Fair Credit Reporting Act violations, and other types of exploitation of workers. He's won a jury trial for a nationwide class of technical support workers, an en banc appeal in the Ninth Circuit, settlements protecting software engineers from gender and race discrimination, and older applicants to accounting jobs, and many other settlements to recover back pay for overtime compensation, meal and rest breaks, vacation benefits, discriminatory pay and promotion gaps, and much more. Mr. Sagafi is also active in the community, serving on several boards. He has been vice chair of the board of the ACLU of Northern California. He also graduated from Harvard, Harvard College, magna cum laude, and received his JD from Harvard Law School, where he was a senior editor of the Civil Liberties Law Review and president of the Board of Student Advisors. So welcome, Kelly and Jahan. Um, so happy to be able to have this conversation uh, with you both. And I wanted to uh, start us out by saying that both of you litigate what's called systemic cases. And so I was wondering, Jahan, if you could explain what systemic discrimination means and how do these cases differ from individual cases? First of all, thank you, uh, Barbara and Melinda, for inviting me and, and for the very kind introduction. Uh, it's wonderful to be here with you. Um, and I will do my best to answer this question, but I'm, I'm going to tag team with Kelly because this is a very huge, multifaceted problem in society, and, and I don't think I can necessarily adequately answer the question on my own, uh, but I'll do my best. So one way to think about it is that uh, systemic discrimination is the sum of the network of human institutions that create perpetuate, reinforce, and even attempt to excuse bias and inequality. Um, and so that in includes a variety of different kinds of institutions, like schools, the whole education system and academia. It includes businesses, corporate America, as well as small businesses. It includes professions like the law, uh, definitely, and medicine and other professions. Um, and it also includes culture cultural institutions like the media and religion and family structure. And all of those cultural institutions can contribute to the problem uh, as well as contributing to the solution. So that's one way of looking at it, I think. And then you, you asked about it in contrast to individual cases. And I guess I would say the cases that Kelly and I focus our work on tend to be big class actions that have a big impact, hopefully, on the defendant and repairing the wrongdoing. But there are also individual cases that challenge systemic discrimination as well. Uh, and they're just looking at it from a different perspective, usually a narrower perspective in terms of Im impacting one person. But the wrongdoing that an individual person is, is experiencing, the discrimination, the harassment, the exploitation, is also, I would argue, stemming from these larger phenomena of systemic discrimination. So a class action, an individual action, a government enforcement action, they're all sort of touching different parts of the elephant and hopefully trying to remedy these cultural nationwide, worldwide problems. Thanks, Jahan, for that really comprehensive explanation about systemic cases. Kelly, was there anything else that you wanted to add? Yeah, so I, I think what Jahan was describing in, in many regards uh, went to the question of systemic racism. When I think of systemic discrimination, I think of that more as a legal term, discrimination 
um, having a certain relevance in law, whereas systemic racism really goes much farther than law. And it sort of goes to a whole constellation of cultural norms and systemic inequities um, that affect people. And as Jahan was describing, it's in um, so many areas of society. It's the complete composition of society. So whether that is employment, of course, but also um, the wealth gap, uh, health outcomes, education, the criminalization of people. Um, and it's an area which has historically, um, you know, very much disproportionately affected Black and Indigenous Americans. And in the employment area, uh, there, there is systemic racism that is addressed in the systemic discrimination cases, um, because those cases really do consider structural disadvantage and cultural stereotypes writ large, as opposed to just one-off bad actor stories. Um, and so in that respect, uh, the systemic discrimination cases are really part of a much bigger, and they tie into a much longer um, historical, cultural uh, demand for change and for fairness. So you're saying that the the systemic discrimination cases, they typically encompass systemic racism? Yes, they touch that part of systemic racism, but they are just a a small subset of systemic racism. So when you're evaluating when to bring a systemic discrimination case, what are some of the considerations? Yeah, so um, obviously, um, because it's a, a case that involves uh, more than one person and involves, you know, a, an impact on a group, uh, among the things that you need to consider as the lawyer evaluating the potential case uh, are things like the size of the group affected. I mean, is it really a systemic case or is it a case that it affects multiple people, sort of like some of my Me Too cases where you have a number of folks affected, but it isn't necessarily a systemic uh, disadvantage caused uh, by the institution. You will look to see if it's if it's not going to be a pro bono case, uh, whether the case is going to uh, have a remedy that can be paid by the entity. You know, are they judgment proof uh, in solving the problem, and which is important to figure out if you're in private litigation. You have to assess, of course always, whether it's individual or systemic, the credibility of the client, of the plaintiff group. Do you believe in them? Um, Which I think is a very important thing for lawyers in this area uh, who are, I think, like me and like Jahan and others, um, really mission-driven and and cause-oriented. We are zealous in in our belief in our clients. And that's a a, a big part of our intake is checking ourselves like, you know, are we going to be zealously in the camp with our clients? Uh, and then we have to think about some of the legal frameworks. So is there a common mode uh, through which the disadvantage is operating that can be addressed in an employment case? Because that is really the critical question um, in the legal framework. And so we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what is that common practice? And it, it might not be obvious to our clients, and it probably isn't obvious to us at first blush. And so that requires a lot of digging and often a lot of gut checking uh, to make sure that we really do have something that a legal action can actually remedy. Um, and so that is very different, I think, than the individual case where you know you you have a client, you just you know feel passionate about 
what's happened to them. Uh, they meet the statute of limitations. Uh, there's a cause of action. Boom. You know, uh, you've got something. Uh, the systemic case, uh, and, and Jahan, I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts about this. Um, it's a much longer journey uh, to piece together what that story is. Yeah, that, that's pretty interesting. Um, so, Jahan, what do you look for? Yeah, I would say Kelly hit a lot of the key points that I would I would definitely agree with. Um, I think one of the questions that we've talked about in pre- preparation for this is, you know, does the absence of DEI initiatives or the presence of DEI initiatives is that relevant? Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about that, and I think the absence of protections, the absence of DEI work by the company is certainly relevant, and um, and because what we're looking for is the company engaging in what we're hoping for, uh, for companies to, to achieve good outcomes is that they've grappled with the realities of unconscious bias and they've built systems to protect against that because best practices in human resources, uh, research and study by psychologists has shown over decades that this is a real thing. And so if people naturally have these biases, what can we do to stop them from expressing those? So for example, in performance measurement, you have situations where if, a, if the manager is just allowed to award bonuses or award promotions based on who he likes the best or what his gut feeling is about uh, somebody's performance, and it's just very subjective and it's very vague, that's uh, optimal conditions for subconscious bias to flourish and to lead to discriminatory outcomes. On the other hand, if you follow HR best practices and you have the manager focusing on specific metrics and specific objective components of performance, then she can say, oh, yeah, so-and-so did a good job of this, not so good job of that, et cetera. And they're going to be focused on what it actually takes to do the job well, as opposed to, eh, do I like them? And, and so then you're going to have better outcomes. So we, we often will uh, uh, inquire in the investigation, you know, what, what are the performance metrics? How are uh, bonuses decided? How are promotions decided? How, are, how is hiring decisions at the beginning of the pipeline decided. Um, so that's a big component. And I guess I would also say, you know, certainly the culture matters as well. So if there's just a culture of preferential treatment for white men, uh, do they just get a leg up because they look like the boss? Do men get the benefit of the doubt because that's just more comfortable for a male manager? That Those are huge red flags. And an individual who comes to us is going to have a certain experience, and we will ask that client, okay, do you have other people that you've talk to who can tell us, uh, who can speak with us as well. And we kind of try and triangulate the problem based on multiple interviews and, and, and look for, you know, the presence of good systems, the absence of bad systems. That's a company we don't want to sue. They're doing the right thing. And then if it's the opposite, that's going to be uh, a target. And I guess one other thing I wanted to pick up on that Kelly mentioned, that's really, really important to what we do as plaintiff's lawyers is, you know, we are in this struggle to promote social justice and, that's what gets us up in the morning. That's what got us to choose this job in the first place. Um, and it's and it's our animating principle. Um, and one component of that is that we get to choose our clients. So lots of people come to us and ask for help. And many of them are suffering from legitimate discrimination, harassment, exploitation. Um, and we unfortunately have to turn them away because we don't have enough hours in the day to help all of them. And because there are these legal hurdles that prevent us from getting a remedy somebody even though they deserve it. And so we're really doing a lot of filtering to choose the strongest claims. And then, as Kelly said, we can believe in those 
clients, not only on a moral level and on a personal level, but on a legal level in terms of our confidence that we're going to be able to get a good result for them. You know, Kelly, you, like Jahan, have represented employees in some very high-profile systemic cases. Tell us about a case you've handled where the outcome is public and an employer's lack of diversity, whether it was in hiring or promotions or lack of inclusion in terms of the workplace culture or lack of equity in terms of pay, for example, is really a cautionary tale for employers. Yeah, I think um, Jahan and I have, have traveled some similar roads uh, in this area. Um, and we, we have even cases, some cases in common that we've done. I think Jahan's going to talk about one. But I would say that, you know, in the, in the technology sector, there's a real undercount uh, of women uh, in technology. And um, there are some, you know, uh, real problems culturally in the tech sector. Um, we have certainly had a case uh, ongoing against Google. Uh, it's still pending uh, with a certified class for women in California uh, and primarily women engineers in California. Um, and then one of the big problems in that case is, you know, we've got a company that does a lot of things well, certainly from a product standpoint, um, they are uh, an industry leader, an innovator, uh, pathbreaker, um, hugely important in our economy and an admirable company in many ways. And yet, and yet they've had cultural blinders um, and they've had issues where they have rewarded the prior pay um, of employees to set current pay, really locking in, talk about systemic inequity the systemic underpayment and undervaluing of women in the workforce gets replicated and reinforced when women have started at Google, which means they already start on their back foot and behind their comparable male peers. And you can never catch up once you're behind. Um, That's a real problem. And, you know, like many uh, technology companies, they've had um, big pockets of employees who uh, spread toxic um, stereotypes about uh, women. And because there's sort of, I think, a, a permissiveness in the tech sector, some of those, you know, more outspoken individuals who create kind of the toxic uh, uh, stereotyping uh, haven't been properly checked in real time. And so a company can do so many things right and be so successful and as a business be a model uh, for other companies and yet not necessarily be paying close enough attention and curating its culture enough around sort of HR practices and equity practices to ensure that the outcomes are fair. And I think that the cautionary tale is is for companies, especially those that are industry leaders and that are broadly celebrated for all the things they do well, is to be careful not to get too uh, caught up in your own headlines, perhaps, that you don't notice that things are not going equally well for everyone inside your company, and that there are these pockets where there's underrepresentation or inequality happening at a group level to people who don't look like uh, the folks in senior leadership. Thank you. Jahan, you, like Kelly, have represented employees in some very high-profile systemic cases. 
Are there particular industries that you have found to be um, particularly vulnerable? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say there are certain industries that seem to have even more discrimination than others. I also think to some degree, you know, it's in the water, it's in the air, it's part of our culture, as I said originally. And so any given employer is is part of this uh, is part of this culture and is likely going to be representative of and reproducing some of these harms that we're talking about. But that said, yes, I think, um, you know, Kelly, for example, was a leader in challenging discrimination uh, on the basis of race and gender in financial services. And financial services was something we've heard about for decades about this white male uh, bro culture that um, where there are certain people who are in power, you know, they got there first, they are comfortable with each other uh, and they kind of want to keep that to themselves and not really have a true meritocracy where they are race blind and gender blind, but actually have this bias and this and this preference for people who look like them and who, who make them feel comfortable. And so that's happened for decades in financial services and unfortunately continues to be a problem. And as Kelly said, it's very much a problem in tech where black uh, professionals, people of color, indigenous professionals and women are all sort of pushed to the side and preferences given to less qualified, less high performing uh, white men because that's just what uh, people some of these folks in power have drifted towards. And one other element of that, I think, is that when a company grows quickly and it's in love with its own product and it's in love with operationalizing and monetizing some trade secret or some product or some great idea. Um, and as Kelly said, they can be great ideas. They can be innovative and they can be um, dynamic and great for the economy and great for consumers. But if the company is so single-mindedly focused on growing that product and grow, growing their sales, growing their market share, a lot of times those other components of the company lag behind. And so the HR function, even the finance function, so you see problems where whistleblowers come forward and say, wait a minute, they're, they're messing up their SEC filings or they're engaged in some accounting shenanigans. Um, so HR, accounting, finance, um, some of these other components that are, that are just cost, they're just overhead, uh, are seen as a drag and not something to focus on. And maybe they just don't even have time for that. So one illustration of that is a case that Kelly and I worked on back in the 2000s against Abercrombie & Fitch, the clothing retailer. Um, and they had a very exciting, dynamic uh, marketing vision. It was controversial and kind of uh, creepy, uh, but they were in love with it and, it. and it gave them some financial success of focusing on a very white, young, sexy image of collegiate, you know, well-off, very much white people. And they had these huge posters in the stores in the early 2000s um, that, would, that were basically naked white people. Blonde white, yeah. <laughs> blonde white people. And blonde, yeah. particular, particular type. Um, and, and they had grown tremendously from about 60 stores to, to over 600 in the period between about 96 uh, when they spun out of the limited to the early 2000s. And so they had this explosive growth. And I think they were they were just not attentive enough to these HR considerations and the best practices of deciding who to hire based on merit, paying people based on merit, promoting people based on merit. Those are all the key things that we've talked about. And so this tendency to discriminate just flourished. And especially when you say to people, uh, hire based on the Abercrombie look, which was the instruction they gave people, 
but didn't define the Abercrombie look, but there are these gigantic posters on the, on the walls. So it doesn't take a genius to figure out what the Abercrombie look is. And if I want to uh, succeed in this company, I better do what I hear my boss telling me. And so we, we heard these horrible stories of managers, district managers, even regional managers, really saying some horrible discriminatory things about, you know, there's too many Asians, there's too many black people. Like if there's a black customer, you follow them around and, 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 you know, make them uncomfortable. Um, and, and just again and again, all these things where people are running enthusiastically with what they perceive to be the message from on high of the Abercrombie look is white. So you better make that happen. And, and so I think that combined as sort of product or marketing concept with this quick growth. And those to me are two uh, serious red flags. Wow. Well, what, what kind of damages uh, typically result from these cases? Yeah. So uh, I guess I would answer that in two categories. One is the sort of backward looking compensation for the harm that has already been suffered. And then the forward looking systemic change that we're trying to bring. Because again, this is all within the rubric of this systemic discrimination that we're trying to remedy. So backward looking, we have money for the harmed class members. Um, and so it can be measured based on their failure to be hired, the pay disparities, the failure to promote, unfair allocation of opportunities. So giving more attractive or lucrative assignments to insiders or to you know, this group of white people on these teams as opposed to those other more diverse teams. Um, and, and so that can be measured in a variety of ways. And then forward looking, we have what we call programmatic relief or injunctive relief, where we, as part of the settlement agreement with the defendant, uh, enter into a consent decree, or you can just call it a, a settlement agreement, where they agree to improve their HR practices uh, and their employment practices. So there's a whole menu, um, and I think we may be able to put this up on the website, of, um, of best practices uh, at all steps along the path of hiring, promotion, training, performance measurement, compensation, general cultural improvements in diversity and DEI issues, um, facilitating people making complaints and actually having them be heard, um, and, and then reporting requirements where as part of the litigation and the oversight of the settlement, the defendant and, and we work together in the years after the settlement to monitor improvements and make sure that they're doing a better job and getting, uh, you know, getting non-discriminatory outcomes as much as possible. Yeah. And if I could just amplify that a little bit, if I would just add that I think for a lot of people, when they think of class actions, they think of getting this unreadable document in the mail that promises them a coupon or, you know, send in a thing for $5, you know, right. and they think this is um, silly. And I think what's been really um, enjoyable for, for me, and I'm sure for Jahan, is getting real dollars to people, each class member getting like real money, and um, having this type of post-settlement process that could go on for years and years. I mean, I have a case that ended up having an eight-year um, consent decree. And what that meant was every six months for eight years, we met with the company uh, and we met with outside experts that were retained as part of the post-settlement compliance to track all of the new programs that the settlement had required the company to implement that were for the benefit, uh, in this case, uh, for African-American and uh, Latinx uh, financial advisors uh, and for female financial advisors, and to see exactly what was happening in terms of their footprint within the company, 
Uh, what was the bench for management? Um, how was pay being distributed to ensure that we actually were seeing growth in the, in the actual success of uh, our clients uh, over time? And to really reflect uh, in that period about the importance of, of implementing practices that aren't just about just writing a check to someone, but are about getting someone's career onto a path where there can be long-term success and long-term growth, which is really where people benefit the most, not just in the, the one sort of the snapshot of payment, but the payments that accumulate over time when someone's career is advantaged. So um, that's really, really exciting about these cases and very different from what you would see, again, in like the one-off cases or even in other types of class action practice. If I could add one more thing to that, um, Kelly is reminding me that, you know, this, our work as litigators is inherently antagonistic, where we have a client and we want to sue a defendant who we allege has done something wrong. But one of the great parts about the settlement posture is that at that point, you know, from our perspective, these anti-discrimination protections and um, ways to break down systemic discrimination are very much win-win. And, um, and the company has a strong interest in getting it right. You know, it's, it's totally counterproductive. In addition to being unjust, it's totally counterproductive for a company to have the, the ill effects of discrimination permeating its culture because that's, A, demoralizing to many people and, and demotivating. And so they're going to lose good people. And B, it's failing to optimize on the talent that they have because they're, they may be hiring promoting, rewarding the wrong people or people who are not the best performers. So it's not truly meritocratic, right? To let discrimination permeate the organization. So from our perspective, it's very much in the defendant's interest to do this, to, to make these fixes. And that's why at the end of the day, when we when we shake hands and agree on a settlement, they pay some money, they, they wanna pay the lowest amount of money possible. And we wanna get that money to be the, the biggest amount possible. But then when we talk about this programmatic change, we want to push for it, but we also want to explain to them, hey, it's it's in your interest. And a lot of times they get that. And so they they willingly do a lot more than they necessarily might have to do if a court forced them to, if we went all the way to trial and, and won. Right. Um, and so that's really rewarding to have that win-win component. Yeah, I can, I can really plus one that um, working from an in-house perspective um, and even more so because of the generations that are entering the workforce now and becoming the you know dominant representation of the gen, you know the Gen Zs and the millennials their employee activism has increased and they're actually demanding that their employer be um, as proactive as possible in terms of not only driving diversity in the workplace, but ensuring an inclusive environment and ensuring that practices are in place that allow for, you know, career opportunities and things like that. They're very, very vocal and demanding of that. And quite frankly, you can't access top talent. You know, you can't bring top talent into your organization. You can't retain top talent um, by ignoring those issues. Yeah, I think one of the things that um, I learned um, early on, so a case that I had uh, as a young lawyer in the 90s that resulted in a big settlement against Home Depot class action, was that uh, there can be win-wins. There really can be win-wins. And, and the win-win we had there was that when we um, ultimately had um, various practice changes that both made certain systems more transparent, but more 
dependable and also easier for managers to use, it really enhanced retention, that it changed the turnover rate among employees. Because when workers feel like there's fairness, even if they don't individually get picked, when they know that the system itself is is a fair system, they don't feel mad at the employer and they're not looking for the next job. And so I think that that is the bottom line for employers. Like you will, you will benefit overall when you have a system that, uh, that actually addresses that cultural need. Yeah. And Abercrombie was, was similar. They, they got their higher, their level of diversity was pitiful when we first sued them and they got up to basically in line with the population and in line with their competitors um, by the end of that six-year consent decree. Um, and during that process, we talked to them and, and, and I, you know, we said, you know, you, you, you are in love with the Abercrombie. Look, you're, you're, you're set on that. We're not going to convince you to do anything other, but why, why not convey to the managers? Okay. Here's the Abercrombie. Look, it's diverse. It has, you know, here's pictures. And, and they actually ended up giving a notebook to each store that had, and, and we kind of work with them. And, and I think in the end, they were very careful about making sure that on four pictures on each page, there were at least two that were not white. And so, you know, that was 50-50. And, and I think that hopefully contributed as well to teaching people like Abercrombie is not defined by whiteness anymore. Thank you. We're going to pause our conversation here and pick back up in our next episode to take a closer look at diversity, equity, and inclusion in the legal profession. You've been listening to today's Workplace with Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. If you like what you heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future updates and episodes. For more information about today's episode, check out todaysworkplace.com. That's T-O-D-A-Y-S-W-O-R-K-P-L-A-C-E dot com.